pray with me, Father, that's our prayer. We'd love, we desire uh, to see you clearly. Uh, so we pray that in these moments as the scripture is read, as we think about what is there, that you would reveal yourself to us, you'd manifest yourself to us, you'd disclose yourself to us, that we might see your glory, that we might know you better, that our faith might be strengthened and increased. Father, there's so much that can distract us from just that. I pray that you'd deal with all that for us. Take all that away. Enable us to uh, be attentive to you and to you alone. In this we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read just verses 17 through 19. Hebrews chapter 11, please. Hear the word of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, as we began into Hebrews chapter 11, we've been asking the question, what really does it mean for us to live by faith? In one sense... We answer that every Sunday as we gather. Because worship is an act of faith. As we come together to worship, we worship by faith. We can't see God. We don't see Him with these eyes. But we believe in Him. We trust Him. And so we come by faith because this is His idea, not ours. We come by faith because uh, He is the one who calls us to it. We come by faith because we believe that He is. That is, that He is God. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That is, as I mentioned before, early in the service, we believe that God attends this time. And that something actually does happen in the midst of all of this. I always say, when I do a wedding, that something happens during that time. I always tell the couple, when you entered into this place, you weren't husband and wife. When you leave, you will be. Because in the midst of this event, in the midst of this time, God is at work doing something. He's joining you together to be husband and wife. In this moment, as we gather together in the presence of God, something happens. Because we believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So as we seek him in worship, we trust he engages with us. And his presence is here with us. And therefore, he's at work in us. And all of that, of course, by faith. Now, particularly as we've come to Hebrews 11 most recently, we've been thinking about Abraham and we've been asking the question, uh, how did Abraham live by faith and how does that help us? How did Abraham live by faith and how does it inform uh, our lives as we live by faith? And remember last Sunday, we considered the fact that, that God called Abraham to faith, He called him to follow him. Uh, the calling of God came before the faith. It wasn't that, that Abraham had faith and therefore God called him to follow. All that we know about Abraham's family uh, was that they were worshippers of idols. 
And so it wasn't that he came from this great strength, faith, family, or anything like that. God, in his sovereign wisdom and grace, plucked this man Abram out. And in his call, Abraham then followed by faith. And it was by faith because he didn't see God. He heard him, didn't see him. But, but, but he went to a place uh, that God was going to take him to give us an inheritance. And so he left behind all that he had known before literally, locationally, geographically, family left all that behind, wife, some family, some stuff, and they went. And, and he didn't even know where God was taking him. But God says, I want to take you to this place. And when they got there, um, Abraham lived in tents. He didn't even have a permanent kind of a place. Uh, and all that Abraham owned of that place during the course of his life was the cave that he bought for his wife uh, after she died so he could put her there. But he lived by faith. He looked beyond all of that to God. He looked beyond all of that to the promises of God that says, this is yours. And you're to live here. And he lived desiring more than what he saw. He lived desiring what God had promised him. Thus he lived by faith. And not only that, uh, God had promised him descendants. God had promised that he'd be the father of nations. God had promised that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And yet he was childless. And so... God says, well, you'll have a child. It took 25 years for that child, Isaac, to come. And Abraham lived by faith, knowing that all of God's promises, therefore, were wrapped up in this one descendant, this Isaac, who would carry on the name, who would, from whom uh, these offspring would come, th from whom and through whom this covenant with God would, would move on to its way to fruition. Abraham lived by faith. Now, today we're going to increase the intensity of what it means to live by faith. Because it takes place in a familiar to most of us event in the life of Abraham that is almost unthinkable. Turn to Genesis and chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife so they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, so they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound, his, and bound Isaac his son 
and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, I don't want to lower the intensity of this particular test of faith to Abraham. It would have tested his faith very, very personally. Personally, of course, because this was his son. This wasn't some stranger, it wasn't some animal, it wasn't some enemy, it wasn't someone who had been sentenced to death. This was his very own son. And God even made a point, Abraham, I want you to understand which son. This is your only son, the son you love. So you get this sense that God knew exactly what was being required of Abraham as he made this command. You get this sense that Abraham knew exactly what was required of him because this was his son. And this would have tested him spiritually as well because technically speaking, Isaac wasn't his only son. He had another son, a son named Nishmael. But Isaac was his only son in the sense that it was through Isaac that these descendants of Abraham would come. It was with Isaac that this covenant would be renewed. It was through Isaac that all the promises that had been made to Abraham would ultimately come to fruition. Isaac was key here. So in that sense, he was the only son of the promise. He was the only son of the covenant. And he was the son that Abraham would love. And wouldn't you know that Abraham would be thinking, God, what are you saying here? Are you just toying with me? I mean, for all of those years, you promised me a son, and I didn't have a son. For 25 years, the son did not come, and now he's come. And all the promises are bound in him. And now you're saying you're going to have him killed by my very own hand. What's the deal? What's going on here? Why, why did you even give me this son if now you're going to take him away? And all of that, you begin to, he'd begin to think, wouldn't he, about the goodness of God? God, is this good to do? Is this good to do to me? Is this good to do my, to my son? The justice of God. I mean, later on, God would bring a command that would say, that you shouldn't murder. Well, then God, how can you command me? Abraham would say, to do this. God would decry all of the child sacrifice that was going on in the nations around Israel throughout the Old Testament days, even in the context of ancient Israel. He said, child sacrifice was evil, it was wicked, it was wrong, and now... Abraham is being called to do just that. He would test him spiritually. Should I do this? Should I obey this word of the Lord? It's a little consolation as we realize that Isaac, of course, was the safest person on the planet that day. Because if Abraham disobeyed God, he would live. And we know what happened when Abraham obeyed God. So in God's mind, Isaac was perfectly safe. It wasn't about Isaac at all. I don't know that Isaac could have been convinced of that at the moment, but, 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 but it wasn't about him, really. It was about, it was about Abraham. And the question for Abraham is, will I believe God? 
What does it mean to live by faith in the midst of this kind of a situation? What does it mean to live by faith in the midst of this kind of word from, from God? I mean, frankly, a confusing thing to us is there are people all the time who commit murder and say that God is the one who led them to do that, that they were on a divine mission, and yet we call them insane. But had Abraham had to go through with this, if Isaac fever had come home, his explanation would have been, the reason Isaac isn't with me is because God told me to sacrifice him. So the confusion could be huge, the spiritual test of his own faith to be very large at, at that point. And so the question for us is, how, how do we deal with that? How do we understand all of this? Now, in retrospect, we can see that, that, that God provides for Abraham and for us a beautiful picture of the work of Christ, doesn't he? I mean, here we, we have it. And you can see the parallels. You can sniff them out as you read the passage. Your only son, the son you love, Abraham. And God tells us that Jesus is his only son in whom he's well pleased. And in even this three-day time period that, that it takes for, for Abraham and Isaac to make it to the mountain uh, upon which he's going to be sacrificed, you get the sense that, that Isaac's as good as dead in the mind of Abraham for those three days and of course Jesus dead for three days and, and, and then, then Isaac takes this wood and he carries it and you get the picture of Jesus carrying his own cross and, and then he's bound, Isaac is, to this wood for the sacrifice and Jesus is nailed to the cross uh, so we see um, all of that in fact this very mount upon which uh, uh, Isaac is to be sacrificed is a mount right outside of Jerusalem may well have been the very location of where Jesus himself was crucified. And we see, of course, this resurrection where in the mind of, of Abraham, his son is given back to him, back from the dead. He was as good as dead and now he's alive. And of course, the very point ushering through all, echoing through all of this is the fact that, 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 that Jesus is that ram. Jesus is that substitute. He dies so that we don't have to. And we see in the midst of this what God provides for Isaac, for Abraham most especially, is a substitute for his son so his son is able to live. And it's that ram caught in a thicket, that Jesus who comes and who dies, who's put in our place. So we see that as well. Again, we can see that in retrospect, but Abraham didn't see any of that. That we know. Uh, he was going to slay his son. He was going at the command of God to sacrifice his son. He was going to test him at every particular point. And so the question is, how does that apply to us? How does that help us in any way, shape, or form? And I think first this, that we see that our faith too is tested. The people who live by faith find that their faith is tested. It will happen. This is a test that God puts before Abraham. It's not something that just happens along. It's, it's a real test uh, that God uh, gives to him. And, and then there are times when our faith is tested as well, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. I don't know about in this kind of a situation. This seems to be like major final exam, right? Comprehensive exam, all in one, right here to Abraham. This is huge. But our faith is tested. We see that uh, through the course of Scripture and God dealing with His people. For instance, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 8 and verse 2, we read this. God says, And you shall remember the whole way, He's talking about the whole way from Egypt into the land of promise for the Israelites who came out with Moses. 
He says, and you, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God's saying, listen, I test you. I will test your faith because I want to see what's in your heart. And you remember, after Abraham obeyed God and he raised his hand to slay his son, God stopped him and he said, Abraham, now I know. Now I know in a sense what's in your heart. Now I know that you fear me. So Isaac can go free. The test is over. And we realize that God took the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land through places where there was no food. So the question could be asked of their own heart. Who do you trust? In whom are you depending to feed you? He took him to places where there was no water. So that the question could be asked, who are you trusting? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in God? He said, I want to see what's in your heart. And I want to teach you something. I want to teach you that I'm the provider. I want to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but lives according to my word. Lives for every word that proceeds out of my mouth. God will test our faith. In fact, we see it. In the life of Jesus, in John in chapter 6, as Jesus is about to feed to 5,000, he's with his disciples, obviously, plus all these other folks. And I feel a bit sorry for Philip, because I would have fallen into the same situation. John 6, verse 4, John writes, Now the Passover, uh, the feast of the Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes. Then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now you're going to sense Jesus saying, now, you know, Philip, you've been with me for at least five chapters. You know, you've been with me for this time. Um, I'm going to ask you an interesting question. Here's all these thousands of people. They're hungry. How do you think we should feed them? Now, Philip answered the same way I do. He said, let's send out. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's McDonald's over there. There's a Chinese place over here. You know, maybe even a yellow sub somewhere. They deliver. Well, we'll be able to get enough food for all these people. Maybe if we all do that. And Jesus, ah, need to hang around with me another ten chapters or so. Right? Our faith is tested. Uh, you know the passage in James, in chapter one as well. I suspect, uh, verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Tests come, trials come, difficulties come. And he said, now when they come, God has a purpose for them. He wants to see what's in your heart. He wants to teach you. And not only he wants to grow you up, when our faith is tested, it grows us up. It's as if it's a metal in fire and all the non-faith gets burned off and all the faith gets purified in you and you grow up in that. Now, interestingly, the same Greek word that's used for test or trial is the same word that is translated in other places, temptation. Because you see, any one circumstance can, can, can produce either one or both. God's intention isn't to tempt you to sin. God's intention for all of these tests is for your faith 
to be stronger, your faith to be proven, your faith um, to be shown. In fact, James mentions that, verse 12 of James 1. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, or you could say tried, but this is a little different nuance. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. He says, any one circumstance, you see, when God's intention for the believer is a trial, it's a test to strengthen your faith and to prove it genuine. However, there's this sin that resides within us that can be carried away and be enticed to sin against God. And he said, that's not of God. That's not God's intention. You can never sin and say, well, that's God's fault. You see, that's not God's intention. God's intention is for you to live by faith. Peter puts it like this in First Peter in chapter 1. In verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, that means in all the blessings of salvation, in all the, the great blessings and gifts that you have received and will receive from God. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, going through these tests of faith, so when the day comes that you meet Christ, there will be great praise and glory. Now that's supposed to thrill us. See, hearing that, hearing that a day will come when Jesus will, will be there, and because of the testedness of our faith, that there'll be great praise and glory, that's to thrill us as much as if we'd be thrilled by someone saying, here's $50 million. Or somebody saying, you're awesome. Right? The, per the right person saying that anyway. But, but, but this, that should thrill us to say, okay, because that's the goal of my life. That's the very purpose for which I exist, to live for the praise and glory of God. And he says, if that's your goal, if that's what you desire, then here's what's going to take place in the course of your life. Your faith is going to be tested. Because it's through those tests that it's refined, that it's purified, that it's strengthened, that, it, that it's proven. And so that's what's going to happen in the context of your life. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, listen, these tests aren't strange. They're, they're, they're not disturbances in your life. This is routine. He says, don't be surprised when these things happen because God's after your faith. He's after growing it up. He's after strengthening it. He's after purifying it. He's after pure, uh, causing it to be uh, shown genuine. And so don't be surprised. He says, but rejoice. 
Now remember, he says, fiery trial. He means that. He means painful trial. Sometimes these tests are painful trials. I don't think this was an easy three days in the life of Abraham as he's walking towards the mountain knowing what's required of him. I mean, for me, it's unthinkable that he's thinking about how it is that he's going to tie his son to some wood and take out a knife and raise it in the air and kill him. That's fiery. That may be more fiery than being burned yourself. You see. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so he says, don't be surprised when tests come, difficulties come to test you. Because you see, they will. God has promised us peace. He tells us, Jesus, this my peace I give you. But you know as well as I do that there are days, there are times, there are seasons even in the course of our life when we feel great anxiety. And that peace seems very elusive. And the question for us, are we going to walk by faith? We have all kinds of passages of Scripture that God will care for us. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We claim that, we think about that, we think, okay, God will help me. I'll be financially secure in some sense, some good measure. And, and yet, there are times, seasons in our lives we may lose our jobs and not have that. There are some cultures who go through poverty who may never know that in this life. The question for believers in that context is, will you live by faith? Will you trust Him? God tells us that we're part of his body, we're part of the body of Christ. We get a sense that I'm going to be part of community. And yet there are days, there are times, there are seasons when loneliness seems very real to us. Yet he's promised us community and we don't see it, we don't feel it. The question is, will we live by, by faith? God calls us, to, to commands us to love our husbands, to love our wives. And yet there are times when that's a very difficult thing to do. There are times when marriages are very hard. And God says, no, I want you to stick this out. I want you to stick in the midst of this. And, and, and we wonder, can we do that? Where's our faith at that particular point in time? When it really gets difficult, when it goes, gets hard, God promises us life. But there are times when death seems much closer than life. And the question is, are we going to live by faith? Are we going to continue on? And not only that, there are times when God calls us and takes from us to, to sacrifice to leave behind some things which are very precious to us in following him. For Abraham, it was even the promise of God to continue the covenant through Isaac. And he says, no, that's got to be sacrificed. So you see, as Abraham comes to these tests, as we come to these tests, these are tests for us of devotion. Am I going to love God? You remember Satan walking around the heavens, the scripture says, bumps into God. They begin to talk. And they talk about a man named Job. God's rather happy with Job. 
points out Job to Satan. I've often said to God, you can just leave me out of your conversations with Satan. I'd be just fine. No matter how good a day I'm having, just we can be quiet. He says, look at my servant Job. Have you thought about him? Have you considered him? And Satan says, well, he only, he only worships you because you've given him everything. Take it away. And uh, he won't. That's the question. Will we worship? Will we live by faith? Will we trust God even when that which is precious to us is taken from us? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Part of what he does in his tests of our faith is to remove from us that which might be, perhaps is, idols to us. Very interesting sentence at the end of John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 5. Last sentence. Seems like a non sequitur as you're reading through this epistle. All of a sudden, he says, my little children, abstain from idols. And you're going, where did that come from? That came from the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the very guts of all of this. We're going to follow after Christ and Him alone, or we can have other things that get in our way, even the good gifts that God gives to us. Sometimes we worship, we love God, we follow after Him because of the things that He's given to us, and we miss Him. We don't worship Him and Him alone. There are times or seasons when these things are gone, and God says, love me, without all of that. So Job says, though He slay me, Yet shall I trust him. And Abraham says, all right. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense in the context of all the promises you've given to me. But okay. See, God has every right to our singular devotion. God has every right to a singular devotion. And it's not because he's some kind of spoiled brat who just can't share. It's because He's created us for singular devotion for Him. It's because singular devotion for Him is what we're all about. It's, it's the fullness of joy that singular devotion to God brings. There can be no happiness apart from God. There can be no ultimate joy apart from God. Because, because He really is the center of everything. And so He says, listen, if you're going to follow me, as we mentioned last Sunday, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. If you want to save your life, that is, hang on to what you have, that's all you'll ever have, and you'll lose real life. But if you're willing to lose all of that and follow me, you'll save real life. You'll gain it. So it's a test of our devotion. It's a test also. As we mentioned a while ago, it's a test of our understanding. Circumstances will come into our lives that we simply won't understand. Circumstances will come into our lives that we wonder, God, what are you doing here? Why are you taking this from me? Why are you working in such a way uh, that, that, that this has taken place in the course of my life? And still he says, will you trust me? And that's the very point here, you see. Abraham followed through. He said, well, how do you do that? Well, it's amazing. No matter how many questions I have about all of this situation, Abraham didn't seem to have any. 
The scripture says that he got this command from God and he woke up early the next morning and he went about it. He didn't seem to spend the whole night even arguing with God about this commandment. He heard the word of God and got on with it. Now, it's good to note and helpful to note that this comes at a time in Abraham's life when he was fairly mature, we would say, when he had had great experiences with God. He had, he had received the promises of God. He had left behind his family. He had gone to this new place. He had been living by faith. He received the child of promise and all of that. In fact, there was a time when God was doing something that really confused him, that is, when God announced to Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom. And you might remember that occasion. Abraham was a bit confused and very respectfully, he begins to talk to God about that. And he, and he says, God, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you still destroy the city? Will the, will the God of all justice, will the God of all righteousness do good? I mean, help me here. Are you just going to destroy that city even if there are 50 righteous people there? And God says, no, of course not. If there are 50 righteous people there, I wouldn't destroy them. Well, how about if there are 40? Well, well, no, I wouldn't destroy the city if there are 40 righteous people there. How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? At each turn, God says, no, of course not. I, I wouldn't do that. Abraham learned something about God. All right. You're good. You're just. You're righteous. In fact, even the way God played it out, he took Lot out of the city. And then he destroyed it. So you get a sense that at this point in Abraham's life, no matter what else was going on, it was unthinkable that God wasn't good. It was unthinkable that God wouldn't be faithful to his promises. And so he gets the word. And the next morning he goes, gets up and he moves out to do that very thing which God has called him to do. And you see, he's able to do this as well because he reasons. Verse 19 in Hebrews 11 says, He that is Abraham considered, that is he reasoned, that is he calculated, he thought. And his thinking wasn't to be critical of God. His thinking wasn't to argue with God. His thinking wasn't to rebel against God. His thinking was in the context of God. He, he began to think, what do I know about God? What's true about God? He's good, he's faithful, he's righteous. All of that, I know that's all true about God. Therefore, notice what he says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's thinking, okay... If Isaac is crucial, if Isaac is the son of the promise, if Isaac is the one that God has promised the covenant through, then I guess what's going to happen is after I kill Isaac, somehow, some way, someday, he's coming back to life. Because while this problem seems insolvable to me, it can't be for God, it's solvable for him. And that must be it. How else, what else could be true? In fact, you get the sense that the author of Hebrews picked this up from the Genesis passage. Because in the Genesis passage, as Moses writes that out, as he's writing the words that Abraham would have said to the people that went with him, he says, uh, stay here. The boy and I are going to go and worship and come back. That's pretty amazing. Because he's considering, he's reasoning. If Isaac is crucial, then I suppose what's going to have to happen is that God is going to have to raise him from the dead. And he says, indeed, figuratively speaking, he did. And so you see, when God calls us to walk by faith, 
when he calls us most especially to walk by faith through the deeper waters. It behooves us, it's wise for us not to quarrel with him. Not to question him. But to spend our energies thinking about him and reasoning from who he is. It it behooves you, we don't have the sense that Abraham had these kind of people around him, but I would urge you to have these kinds of people around you. And that is these people who speak the truth to you. Who remind you that God is good when it doesn't look like he's good. Remind you that God is faithful when it doesn't look like he's faithful. Who remind you of those things. And sometimes people say, well, it's so trite to go to somebody who's hurting and and tell them, remember, God is good. Well, it might be trite. I don't know. But if I'm in that situation, I want all of you to come to me. Say, Bill, don't forget God is good. Don't forget God is faithful. I need you to tell me that. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't, um, don't discontinue meeting together. We need that kind of encouragement from one another. You know, pick your spots, obviously. Sometimes it's better to say certain things than other things. But the truth of the matter is, we need people around us who are willing to remind us the truth about God so that we don't forget, so that we really know. And Abraham centered his mind upon the promises of God and his experiences with God and who God was. And he says, all right, I can do this because if Isaac is necessary, he'll come back to life. God will raise him from the dead. And Abraham already had enough experiences with God to know that God could do such a thing. He reasoned, he considered, we must reason and consider as well. And not only that, Abraham, and we can learn this from him, no doubt received from God a great blessing at the very end of all this. You might remember in the Gospel of John, there's a scene of Jesus talking to the religious leaders. And in talking to the religious leaders, uh, they're saying that they're children of Abraham. and, And Jesus is trying to tell them that he's better than Abraham, essentially. And so he makes this statement to them. He said, Abraham saw my day and was glad, or Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Now, that's an amazing thing to say, because Abraham had been uh, alive centuries before Jesus physically hit the scene. But Jesus is trying to tell them, listen, I've been around a long time. I'm eternal. And this plan's been in effect a long time, since the very beginning. And Abraham had a glimpse of it. He saw it, and he rejoiced in it. I don't know exactly what day that was that Jesus is referring to, nor do we know exactly when it was Abraham saw it. But my bet's on this day where he took his son Isaac. Because at the moment that God stayed his hand, the moment that God said, Abraham, put your hand down, don't kill your son. At that moment in time, I think he saw it. I think he saw all this truth about the coming one. Because you see, there's only two child sacrifices in all the Bible that God seems to be involved in. This one and his own. Because it was his own child, his own son, that God sacrificed for us. And at that moment in time, Abraham would have seen the goodness, the the love of God 
Don't you know that, that if you had gone up to Abraham and when he had his hand raised like this and said, oh, excuse me, Abraham, just one question before you go through with this. Do you really want to do this? I think in one sense he'd say, no, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to kill my son, but God's commanding me to and I'm trusting him. Therefore, I'll do it. But, 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 but you know, if there's another way, that reminds us of someone. If there's another way, surely I, I'd rather it not be this. But if this is the only way, this is the way of God, then this is the way I'll do it. And at that moment in time, when God stays his hand, don't you know that Abraham was filled with joy? Don't you know that he turned to God in some sense and said, ah, thank you. And don't you know at that moment in time, he saw the very personal love of God for him. When God says, take your son, there's another thing over there. We'll substitute that ram for your son. And don't you know that in the course of life, when we come to faith in Christ, we realize the very same thing. That we see the day of Jesus and we are glad. We say, yes, he for me. Now, the reason I mention that is this. Because I think, and I say I think, because I haven't experienced enough yet of life to be more definitive. Some of you have experienced much more of life than I. Some of you have experienced trials of faith, no doubt much deeper than my own, so I don't want to presume here. But I think the promise of God is this, that when we go through such great trials, that a day will come when we'll be able to look back and say, it was worth it. I take that from two passages. One, John chapter 14 and verse 21. Where Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, the promise of Jesus there is, you know, if you obey me, if you follow me, then here's what will happen. I'll show myself to you. You'll see me in some sense. I'll manifest myself to you. I think that God manifested himself to Abraham on that particular day. He says, this is the love of God. The love of God is we deserve to die, but I'll give you a substitute. The love of God is I'll give you your son back. That's the very love of God. <coughs> and he saw it. And I think when we walk through these deep waters... We can do so by faith, knowing that a day that we'll see in some sense Jesus. And we'll say, oh. I saw a friend in Detroit, I was in Detroit some this week, which isn't very noteworthy of itself. <laughs> but um, I met a friend I hadn't seen in a while, a man who's retired Good man, good guy. Um, he um, retired relatively early. He's in his middle 60s. Relatively early so that he could devote his life to the church. He's a businessman. And now he's heading up a number of things for our denomination in terms of church planting. He has thyroid cancer. It's devastating. And so um, we spent some time and I said, how are you? What's going on with all that? And he said to me the most remarkable thing. He says, it's been really hard, really difficult. I don't understand what's going on because I had planned, thought God had called me to give these last years of my life 
probably 15 of them at least, to the church to help out. And he said, I get this cancer. So it's thrown all of that for a loop in terms of what I want to do. But he said, two months ago, I was having surgery, pretty radical surgery. And he said, I had 30 minutes on the operating table before they put me out. That was the sweetest fellowship I've ever had with Christ. And I I just looked at him for a while, hoping he was going to go on, because I didn't know what to say. And he said, therefore, it's all been worth it. He's still confused. He still wants to work. He still wants to do all those things that he had laid out and planned to do. He doesn't know if he's going to have an opportunity to do them or not, because he doesn't know if he's going to live But he said, those 30 minutes of some sense of Christ making himself very known, I don't know how else to put it, made this horrible experience worth it, he says. Apostle Paul writes this, Romans in chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As we go through these very deep waters, these things of faith, even these things where we thought God has called us this way and all of a sudden that's ended and done and dead and we've got to go a different way and we don't know why or even how. When that which we so loved and was so precious to us seems taken away. The apostle says, you know, these present sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. What he means by that is that what's to come, even because of the suffering, will make the suffering worth it. We'll look back and say, that was nothing compared to this. That was worth it if it got me here. Please understand, I know that I'm speaking well beyond myself. In the context of my own experience. But I'm not speaking well beyond myself because this is what I grab a hold of. As I know that times will come, and I've faced some, but times will come where I'll walk through deeper waters than I've walked through thus far, being the young man that I am. That I trust I'll cling to them, not debating God, not quarreling with Him, but obeying Him. That when the deeper waters come, rather than try to debate with God and argue with Him and all of that, I'll pick up that which He's called me to do. To forgive and to be kind and to be compassionate and to love and all of that. Those things I know that I'm to be about. I may be confused about this, but I know that. And so to continue along in those and to trust that though I don't see a solution to this, there is a solution to this and God has it. And it might not be known to me till I get to the other side, but he knows it and he's at work just as he was in the life of Abraham. And that I'll trust that whatever these deep waters are, he will show me himself in such a way and in such timing that a day will come when I'll say that was worth it. Let's pray, Father.
I do pray for me and for us, God, that we would have no other gods before you, that we would trust you to weed all of those out of our lives, even those things which are good for us uh, in other contexts and at other times perhaps, uh, that you will be at work, that we won't quarrel with your giving and taking, but we'll reason from faith. We'll reason from what we know to be true about you. And we'll always give you the benefit of our trust. So please help us. May we be people that live by faith. None of us knows what will happen this afternoon, tomorrow, the next day, and so forth and so on. Enable us, whatever comes our way, to live by faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.